Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. It is so good to be with you today. We are in a series, like Jeremy said, focusing on the parables or the stories of Jesus mainly. Um, And if Twitter was around, when Jesus was on earth, he would set the standard for how much he could communicate in 280 characters or less, wouldn't he? Most of Jesus' parables were 250 words, and they're not like chicken for the soup for the soul or a saying from a fortune cookie, right? Um, But his stories are like these one-liners that are packed with truth that often are like white hot sparks that zing and challenge us. So therefore, before we begin begin to read one, let's pray. God, I just ask that you would help us to be able to hear what you're wanting to say. I pray that your your spirit would really help us to quicken to the areas that you're wanting us to grow in, to understand more of who you are and how you want us to change. We want to be more like you and use this time in that in the name of Jesus. Well, Jesus said in Matthew, it says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, my strongest memory of this parable dates back to college. And so just a little bit of backdrop. It was August. I was 18, and I was getting ready to go to college. I had already chosen a college in Minneapolis close to my grandmother and my boyfriend. And then my mom and dad asked me, like, well, are you open to going to a Christian college in Oklahoma? Like, ORU? And I'm like, it's August. School is starting in a few days. But I started to think about it, and my boyfriend at the time was just not being quite very attentive, not as attentive as I would have liked him to have been, so I thought, well, maybe going away would show him, right? And I thought, oh, I'm young, I'll try a new adventure. So I told my parents on Thursday, I'm open to this. We had Friday to get all the papers, my transcripts, teacher recommendations, everything to ORU, and, um, and back in that day, it was before we didn't have a lot of computers that access or even faxes. That's how old it is. Um, and I don't know how it all came together, but it did. So that was Thursday. We had Friday. And then on Sunday morning, we left for Oklahoma. And I still think back about it. And I smile because God used my impulsivity and my slightly vindictive side of I'm going to show you that you better pay more attention to me attitude toward my boyfriend to give me a new start, to give me a new start in my relationship with him to develop some lifelong friends, and I got to meet a great guy who I ended up marrying, so that's pretty awesome. Um, So for any of you that ever get worried about whether God is big enough to get you to the right place at the right time, he knows what's best for you. He loves 
you even more than you can imagine. And he's also very sneaky smart. Um, and in that process, mid-year freshman, I became a chaplain for our dorm, um, our dorm floor. So about 36 women. And so what I lacked in biblical understanding, I made up for an enthusiasm. So I didn't know tons and tons. But at the end of the year, they had this banquet for 100-plus uh, chaplains that were male for the male and female dorms. So as a way of honoring the, my group of seven chaplains, our leader had a stand and receive an appreciation in which we were identified using the language of this parable today. And we were identified in front of everybody as the seven virgins who were faithful. And then they gave us an, an oil lamp like this. So, I don't know, it was incredibly awkward for me because I didn't know what they were referring to. And to be called out like, what? Anyway, my church experience never discussed anything in the Bible that had references to, in a sexual nature. So, and I knew it was supposed to be affirming. But can I just say that church lingo can be so weird sometimes? Um, and so that's why um, when we were discussing as a team here what parables to talk about in the series, this was not high on my list. Some of you might remember I do love flannel graphs, and I have, but I never shared this one with my kids, right? And don't you worry, I'm not going to take out the flannel graphs today because I have before, but, um, but other people have. Here's a picture of a flannel graph that I saw that represents some of the issues that I have with this parable. What do we see here? We see five virgins go in the door, but the five that had to go back to get more oil, they were too late and they were stuck outside. It totally reminds me of the ending credits of Flintstone, as which I couldn't stand the end of that. And I was a kid that would be crying and, and, and have to run out when, remember that very end when Fred is trying to get back into the house and nobody will let him and even the, the saber-toothed cat is laughing at him, you know, um, mocking him that, um, you know, you just, you don't get to be a part. And that's what this sort of felt like to me. But what is this parable saying about Christian love and hospitality, like I'm in, you're out, or I don't have to share because God doesn't want me to. I also found some Sunday school curriculum for elementary students on this parable. It was called the Ten Virgins Activities. Can you imagine? I mean, that's an awkward title. Um, but, but the curriculum teaches kids to be spiritually self-reliant by using activities like fasting and praying and reading the Bible and being kind. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I've learned about following God for all these years I cannot do this faith thing on my own. And those activities are great disciplines, but isn't it an oxymoron to be spiritually self-reliant? I mean, we can only do right things for a short time, but in order to go the long distance with God, we desperately need him. So in preparing, um, I also discovered that they taught this parable in song. Many of you might remember it. The birds also did a version of their own. Okay, does anybody remember it? Give me oil in my Lamp, keep me burning, burning, burning. Give me oil in my lamp. I pray. Okay, how many knew that song? Huh? Okay, oh, right, a couple of you. Okay, well, they, they taught that one. Um, I never understood what they meant. Like what the, the parable is telling us that we're supposed to be prepared with our own oil. So why are we asking for oil? Are we asking the store clerk? I don't know. And then why are we singing hallelujah? I don't know. This song has some derivatives, like give me gas for my Ford, keep me trucking for the Lord. There we go. This one's for Greg, who does the sound, and he works all around here. We love working with Greg. But he, um, I don't know if you guys know, Greg, as a kid and as an adult, competitively roller skated, okay? I have heard that there were sequins and spandex involved. I cannot get a picture, but I will pay you if you can find one, okay? So anyway, but Greg, he would do a version of give me wheels for my skates, then I'll roll the heaven's gates, okay? Um, another one, give me umption in my gumption, help me function, function, function. And my favorite and the last one is give me hot sauce in my taco. Let me witness 
in Morocco. Okay, like, okay. Okay, the depth of our Christian music, isn't it awesome? But okay. But let's delve into what this parable really means for us today. Now, contextually, Jesus had been talking privately to his disciples about some really heavy topics, about how no one knows when the, the day when the Son of Man is coming. For us, that means when Jesus is going to return, and how some will experiencing weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus shares the parable of the virgins, and then the paragraph that follows this parable is about the final judgment and eternal punishment. So again, remember, Jesus knows how to speak and send sparks that zing. And so to understand this context, it's important to know wedding customs of Jesus' day. And they're not unlike some of the today's unique wedding customs. One of my favorite customs that I was reading about is from Germany. It's called Baumstehsägen, which means the sawing of the log. And after a ceremony, the first thing that they have the bride and groom do is they have to use a two-person cross-cut handsaw to cut a large log in half while still in their bridal clothes, Okay. Why do they do that? Because they want the couple to give, they want the couple to know that this is going to be your first obstacle of many and to emphasize that whatever obstacle that you come against, you need to do it together. I think it's an incredibly great metaphor, but that is sweaty. Make sure the pictures are done. But um, in our culture, people don't normally get married in the middle of the night unless you're in Vegas, right? But in Jesus' day, weddings were often held in the evening. And the groom and his attending party would head toward the bride's house and the bride and her bridesmaids, a.k.a. the virgins, would come out to meet the groom. And then they would all head back in a torchlight procession to the groom's house for the wedding. Everyone in the procession was expected to carry his or her own torch. So in the case of Jesus' story, the groom is delayed. Now what is implied is that Jesus is the bridegroom. Because in other verses, Jesus has referred to himself as the bridegroom, describing that he's going to come for his bride, for his people. How different is the biblical view of a relationship of people to the Christian God compared to the other world religions teach? I mean, the God of the Bible in both the Old and New Testament, he calls himself the husband of his people. He's married to us, in love with us. He calls us to an intimate relationship with himself. I mean, that's not something that you find outside of the biblical religion. There's no personal, romantic, intimate relationship between a Muslim and Allah. Submission, yes. Obedience, yes. But... Intimacy and affection? No. Um, There's no love relationship between a Hindu and the impersonal principle of Brahma. You don't have any romance, romance or intimacy or affection from a higher power with any religion in general. But this is what we are offered in Jesus Christ, a relationship with a bridegroom. So in this parable, Jesus um, invokes a tradition of wisdom that is developed in the Old Testament. We see it in Proverbs the writer treats wisdom and folly as two, wisdom, two women, and they help us to see that unique choices lead to different consequences. So Jesus is referencing the unexpectedness of his return for the church and our need to live ready. So since the groom would be met in a torchlight procession, each person was going to have a long stick, and they would wrap it with rags, and they were soaked in oil. So typically, that would last about 15 minutes, and they were going to, so everybody was accustomed to carrying a flask of oil and additional rags to wrap the stick with. So this helps us understand when the unprepared women, then they beg for oil, and the other women refuse to share it, it's not for selfishness, but it emphasizes a bottom line, that one person's faith cannot save another. So each person needs to prepare and be ready for Christ's return. To be prepared and to wait. I tell you, as Americans, that's not easy, right? We're an instant society. We value speed over everything. We, 
we value speed over quality. We value speed over commitment. And we even value speed over relationships at times. We see this um, desire for instant gratification with weight loss and money and advertising. Like I was looking at this one, a moon diet. How to lose six pounds in 24 hours. Please, could we make that happen? Like, no. Um, we even have one-minute bedtime stories for our kids. How do you tell the story of Goldilocks and the three bears in one minute? Does that mean that you just have one bear? Do you skip the porridge and the chairs and go right to, the, to picking out the bed? I don't know. But as a counselor, um, I consistently hear a desire for instant solutions to long-standing problems. And I get it. You know, you get to that point where it's like, I can't get any more paint. I can't, I got to get out of this. So I'll have someone call and they'll say, would you help me? My spouse is wanting a divorce. The moving van is in our driveway. Would you help us stay together? And so when you ask like, okay, well, how long have you guys been having problems? Well, about 15 years. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. That is hard and I want to help. But there are going to be no quick fixes to this, is there? And I also know that for, some of, for those of us that believe in the power of God for deliverance and healing, that sometimes we struggle with the process and with waiting. We believe and we pray for an immediate intervention with God. Yet our faith can get really unhealthy if we don't pair our belief in the immediate miraculous with the knowing that change, most change comes as a result of people intentionally committing themselves to hard work of relying on God's grace and his strength over time to help us to change our thoughts and our behaviors on a daily basis. I mean, I know in my own life, I've seen a few instantaneous healings from addiction and from grief and depression, but it's a rare exception. I mean, I've personally experienced divine encounters with God that have brought breakthrough in my life, but I also know um, that lasting change requires process. There are just, there's no easy one-step methods to change. And why is that? I think it's because it's in the process And like any relationship, it's in the process that a real and a strong relationship is developed, particularly for us with God, where we get to know and experience more of who God is. We get to grow in confidence of who he is and who he wants to be for us. And I think that God actually values the process often more than the outcome. So if if this, this parable looks a lot like what Eugene Peterson references in his book, and I love the title, Long Obedience in the Same Direction. So if I had a title of a message, I'd tweak Peterson's thought to say, how do I follow Jesus for the long haul? And that's what we're going to focus on for the rest of the message. How do we, fo- how do we follow Jesus for the long haul? Because if we say that we want to follow Jesus, what we're saying is, I want to be a part of a process of spiritual transformation with the goal of becoming like Jesus. And I think, I think we all, if, we, we, if we're going to follow Jesus, we want to become more like him. But boy, it is not easy We get distracted. We get tired of growing and becoming spiritually transformed. I mean, one minute we want to be like, oh, I want to be all in with God. And then we think, well, nah, today I'd rather just do my own thing. And God knows that about us. And that's why I react so strongly to that 10 virgins activity children's curriculum about being spiritually self-reliant. By our own efforts, we cannot do this journey. We need God to even want us to do it, right? So our prayer could be, God, I'd rather watch Netflix than read my Bible or reach out to a neighbor. Can you please help me? I want, help me to want you more. So this summer, I've been listening to stories of people who have loved Jesus faithfully for the long haul. The people like Corey Tenboom. 
I just love the fact that 48 years old, she's a, she becomes a key leader in the Dutch resistance, working to hide and rescue Jewish families in her home in order to escape the Holocaust. Eventually, she and all of her family were caught and put in concentration camps. And I'm inspired by how she lived her life to bring God's redemption to even those that persecuted her. Corey lived her life reflecting her sister Betsy's last words. And Betsy requested um, that Corey let other people know how they experienced God in those horrific circumstances. And she said, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. I've listened to a guy named Bob Fu from China, who as a young man became extremely disillusioned with any government institution after seeing many of his friends mercilessly murdered at the Tiananmen Square massacre. Fu came to know Christ through some Christian missionaries who had smuggled books into China. Those who led Fu to Christ told him that being part of a faithful follower of Jesus for every Chinese Christian was to take a theology course. And that first course was not going to be systematic theology or hermeneutics, but it was going to be prison theology. Part of the normal Christian life for Chinese Christians was to prepare for prison. Can you imagine? Prison theology helped them to learn how to jump from a second floor window to escape capture. It was how to bless those who persecute, persecute you, how to suffer without retaliation, and most importantly, how to rest in the presence of God. And it reminded me of Richard Wormbrandt, who I got to hear at the college that I went to 35 years ago. He was a Romanian Jew um, who had become a Christian. And Wormbrandt was imprisoned for his faith. He was tortured physically and emotionally. His wife was also imprisoned and left their nine-year-old son homeless on the streets. And I'm not going to go into detail of all that he went through, but the broad stroke picture is out of his 14 years in prison. He spent three of those years in solitary confinement. It was in a hole 12 feet underneath the ground with no lights or sound. Throughout his imprisonment, he experienced regular beatings along with other forms of mutilation and torture. And, um, and after being released from the prison, um, doctors did not know how he had survived. Um, his body was a physical record showing the outside world of the horrific, inhumane treatment of Romanian communist prisons. Um, in fact, when I saw him when he was much older, toward the end of his life, um, he they had to carry him in because, you know, four vertebrae were broken, feet, he could not walk. So they had to carry him and set him on the chair um, And when we listened to him share. And I was struck by Wormbrand's thought while he was in prison. Because this is what he said. Why should I be afraid of the torturers? They don't beat me. They beat my body. My me, my real being, is in Christ. I was seated with him in the heavenly places. This, my, my real person, could not be touched by them. Now he is referencing Ephesians 2 where Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wormbrand understood at a level we could, I don't know if we ever get to, and I don't want to have to go to that place but to be seated with Christ was to be so thoroughly enveloped by his strength, by God's strength, his comfort, and his rest. How does someone in such gruesome circumstances grow more in love with God? How do they rest so securely in Christ? So this summer, I've been taking a spiritual transformation class that Christy Lahoda has been teaching during our 9 a.m. service. And in it, we touched on how the Apostle Paul talks about God's rest 164 times and how his writings had one consuming theme, 
being in Christ or Christ being in us. Author Gary Moon says, Paul's central teaching, being in Christ, is closely connected to learning to live our lives as his apprentice. To be in Christ is to stay connected to him. It's learning to abide and rest in him. To be connected with him as branches or organically connected to the vine, as Jesus describes in John 15, where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes and that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, so abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. I love the visual of being so rooted and established in God that we grow out of him. This rootedness reemphasizes that it is not moral laws that change us. It's a relationship with Jesus that does. It's incredibly important to know the word of God and what are right and moral behaviors, but no amount of us trying to do the right behaviors is capable of producing within us an internal transformation. And I hope it doesn't come across disrespectful, but one of the reasons our society has the practice of viewings at funerals is that you see your loved one And you're clearly faced with the truth that no matter how well they have prepared their body, the truth is that they are dead, and that becomes more real. The same is true spiritually. We are dead, and it is only a relationship with God that can make us alive. The most a dead, empty, helpless person can do is turn himself into a more attractive dead person, maybe do a couple more things that make you look good. But good-looking people are still dead. They're good-looking dead people. They may try to do the right things, but without any power of their own to produce the life within themselves. And that's why the first and most foundational point of, of this, of spiritual transformation, that spiritual transformation, following Jesus for the long haul, is all about a relationship with him. God desires that our spiritual learning to be relational and not just functional. And what I mean by that is functional means I want to resolve this problem. That's functional. God, help me out of this bad job. It stinks. And that's an okay prayer, but it's functional. A relational prayer would ask God, what are you wanting to show me about who you are and about myself in this situation? Because God is wanting us to grow in the fruit of the Spirit and character so that we can break into new ways of living. And when we forget that it's less about the circumstances and more about a relationship with God in our process of transformation, we can go through situations over and over again Because God's wanting us to connect and to learn that point so we can be at a higher level of truth. Our second point builds off the first. In order for those prepared bridesmaids, those faithful followers of Jesus, we have to do what Paul says. And he talks about learning to abide or rest in Christ. And we've referenced this. You know, we heard about these heroes of faith that learn to abide in Christ. So what does abiding or resting in Christ mean to you? So if we go back to the image that Paul shares and that resonated in Wormbrand, um, imagine if I had made you stand for the entire sermon today, um, right? Most of you appreciate sitting because when you sit, what do you do? You relax. You get to take the weight off. You take a load off and a peace comes to you. Remember the Ephesian passage that we just read? Because of God's love, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That image of being seated with God, it's all about rest. 
And in the natural, something happens physically to your body when you sit, you relax and you rest. What's true in the natural is true in the spirit. To be seated with Christ is an attitude of rest. It means that we're sitting with Christ. Our perspective is elevated. Circumstances are going to look different to us. And it doesn't mean that they get easier. Situations don't, but our viewpoint gets better. And the key is that when we rest, we become much more aware of God. Another image of resting in Christ um, has to do with birds. Okay, I love ducks. My family, we raised some ducks for a few years when I was little, and I remember sharing my baby pool with them. And now thinking back at it, like, what was my mom doing? Like, that, I don't know, it was sort of, it was the 60s, I guess. But anyway, um, but it, so I loved little baby ducks. I loved them. Um, and as an adult, I moved to Oregon, and the ducks took on a little bit of a different turn. And I'll look, but I still kept enjoying ducks. But if I was asked, would you rather be a duck or an eagle? No sports references, okay, implicated now. As cute as ducks are, what would you choose? I mean, I'm going to choose an eagle because when ducks fly, they have to work so hard. Flap, 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 you know. I mean, I don't want to have to work that hard. Um, you know, and, a, and an eagle, they just sort of soar. It looks so much easier and way more cool, right? Um, so having to flap that hard, it reminds me of, you know, how we try so hard to be like Jesus on our own efforts. And I love what God says through Isaiah. But those that wait for the Lord, they renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They are going to run, and they're not going to be weary. They'll walk and not faint. This is the rest that God wants us to, uh, to enter. Rest has us being much more God-conscious, and in Him we can soar, and the work is not so heavy and hard. But if rest seems rather foreign to you, or if you think it's too unrealistic or too good to be true, then I would say somewhere in your life, you've probably been involved in a relationship that was based on conditions. Like loving acceptance, it was held out for you like a carrot on a string, and you get a taste of acceptance if you did good enough behavior, but you never felt like you had that full acceptance. How do you rest in a relationship where you don't have full acceptance? The reason that we can have rest in God is we have nothing to prove, um, no one to impress, nothing to purchase. Jesus says you are loved and accepted not because you've kept all the laws or you've earned all these little spiritual merit badges, but because you are no longer under indictment. God considers you worthwhile and capable. And if he does, who else or what else matters? It is in his perfect love we learn to rest. And out of that gratefulness, then we follow his guidelines by his grace. One of my, one of my favorite authors is a guy named Graham Cook, and he was reading Jason Bourne. Now, I don't know why you would read the book when you can watch the movie, but anyway, he was reading it. And, of course, Jason Bourne is about a fictional assassin who had amnesia, and he was trying to figure out who he is, right? Bourne is in constant danger, and he experiences these flashbacks of his past, which come at really high moments of stress. And in one flashback, he hears, eat whenever you can, sleep wherever you get a chance. Sleep is a weapon. And when Graham read it, he, could just keep, he kept hearing that rest is a weapon. Each time he read it, it goes, rest is a weapon. And um, so then he went through this long season of learning with God when, he, when God says, come to me, all who are weary and overburdened, and I will give you rest. What does it mean to learn to stop shouldering our own load and sharing it with Jesus? That's the invitation that he keeps giving to us. Rest is a weapon that we can wield. It's a lifestyle that we practice every day. But boy, it's easy to forget and do it on our own. And then it's sort of strange to think about, we, um, we refer to rest as a weapon, but we also, the Apostle Paul talks about it, how we need to learn to fight to enter this rest. 
We're not in a fight to produce better behavior, but our fight is characterized by fighting to believe what is true about us because of what God has done. And this fight to believe and live out this truth leads to our third and final point. We enter God's rest by transforming our mind. Many of us know Romans 12, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So many of us have heard this, and, and I did for a long time, and I, but I didn't quite get it. Because in the, in the Greek, the word be transformed, we know that it means metamorphosis. But in the Greek, it's passive, which means transformation is done to us. It's not by us. So I had always thought that transformation was my job. You know, but like tadpoles or catapole, caterpillars that are metamorphosizing, they're being transformed over a period of time, so are we. Our transformation happens as a result of us renewing our minds. We are in a continual process of being transformed, and it could be for the good or for the bad, depending upon what we do with our thought life. I love what Dallas Willard says, is that the first move we make in spiritual transformation is in our thought life. We continually bring his truth and his goodness to mind. Because most of us, I would say, if not all of us, struggle with what we call maybe a heart-brain barrier. It's where we know a lot of good stuff about God, but we're not able to really believe it. That our feelings and our decisions reflect confidently that we rest and we believe the goodness of who God is. So renewing our mind, it looks like every time you have a negative thought, we know that God has a better thought that can speak louder in an opposite direction. If worry or fear or panic present themselves, we think about what God may want to give us instead. Renewing the mind is becoming more God-conscious, God-aware, and that leads to more life-giving thoughts because we're thinking more like God thinks, right? Sometimes that's easy, sometimes it's not. Um, most people, I would say, have incredibly negative thoughts that replay in their heads. Sometimes we're not all aware of it, but that's why we use things to distract ourselves, right? But what's helpful with rest and abiding in Christ is it's learning how to give us the space to catch our breath. We get to like press a, pause, press a pause button and we get to ask God some questions. And here are three that I think are really important. How do you, God, see this situation? Who do you want to be for me in it? What are you doing and how can I partner with you? Very relational questions. Because if God is not becoming bigger, then circumstances get bigger, right? And when God becomes bigger to us, it's not that the situations get easier, but we get bigger. We're being trained by God to think and live as he does. If we have recurring um, negative thoughts, one key way of letting God help transform our thinking is a cognitive restructuring strategy. So I thought it was really interesting because I've heard Beth Moore do this too. And I don't know if she knew that she was using a cognitive strategy. And I also heard her share on a similar struggle that I had that maybe, maybe you guys have also. But it's called the if-then cognitive strategy. So with this strategy, you pick one or two of your worst fears and think them through. I know. Isn't that fun? Yay. Let's do that. Okay. But, um, but it is important because there was a time I used a strategy when it was a season in, in my marriage with Ross where I re really struggled. Our closest friends were getting a divorce. And one of them had had an affair. But they had always presented like they had a fantastic marriage. And in fact, one of the spouses, she was completely blindsided. So combine this with Ross traveling a lot during that 11 years of our marriage. And um, it led me to struggle with a scenario in my head, and especially late at night. What if Ross had an affair? What if he chose someone else? And then what's going to happen? I'm here. I have three kids. 
So let me be clear, Ross has never had an affair, okay? So don't, don't you worry. Um, but I knew I had to deal with my feelings and thoughts, and I knew I needed God to give me some peace about that because I was pulling away. So with God, I took this thought, and I thought it all the way through. Now, this is a strategy that is not something that you do every day, but when you get stuck and you're ruminating it, okay? Working through your thoughts can, if we could work them way all the way through, sometimes it helps us to be able to change them more quickly later. So the if then is if blank, imagine your situation, then blank, what would happen? So in my imagined scenario, Ross did not just have a one night stand, okay? He fell in love and he fell in love with someone much younger and prettier than I am. And then instead of our kids being really angry with their dad and they refusing to speak to him, they actually liked her and they liked her better than me. Okay, still makes me angry. And, um, and then in my mind, I saw that our kids got older and we had grandchildren and our grandchildren liked her better than they liked me. And so it got worse from there, okay? So, but God says, if that happened, that is awful. But then what? Well, God, if that happened, I would be heartbroken. I would be devastated. I would be angry, depressed, and I would cry and cry and cry. Well, if that happens, then what? Well, if that happens, then I knew I'm going to be flipping angry. I'm going to cry my eyes out, but I'm also going to open my heart up to God, and I'm going to ask him to redeem all the pain and the loss. I'm going to ask and believe that he's going to make something powerful out of this pain and that there is going to be fruit from it that is never going to pass away for me or for all of my children and the legacy that I want to have for my life. And then by his grace, what am I going to do? I'm going to get back up on my feet and I'm going to get back to living life. And I'm going to continue this long haul of following him. And I'm going to expect some joy in return. I'm going to choose to enter his rest because I know that God is faithful and he always has our back. You know, a much greater fear that some of us have is if something happened to our loved ones and those thoughts can haunt us. Whatever the fear, practice, if blank, then blank. If it is a loss of a loved one, and we have watched enough people in our church have to go through this, but face that fear, stand there, picture them gone. With God, work this through in your mind. And when you see it, God asks, then what? Well, Lord, I can hardly breathe. I miss them so much. I feel like I'm going to grieve myself to death, but I'm still here every morning. And then what God says. On the floor I cry, God, you are the only anchor to my soul. I am dead. Can you raise me from the dead? And even though my life seems over, help me to see that it isn't true and somehow that you have good for me. Allow yourself to think through your thoughts through with Jesus, practicing entering his rest by remembering, I am seated with Christ in heavenly places. I have a different perspective. And how do you see this, God? How do you want me to see this? Let your heart echo the truth that Betsy Ten Boom experienced in the concentration camps when she said, there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. Because if we're going to follow Jesus for the long haul, It's going to be, it'll only happen if we learn to enter his rest and abide in his love. And when we rest and abide in him, we become more confident and peaceful about tomorrow because we know that no matter what, he has got us. I mean, I just, when I listen and think about those people that we just mentioned, ah, we are part of a long line of incredible followers of Jesus who have been faithful for the long haul. And I want to be like them. I think we all do. We want to grow in more confidence in the joy that Jesus has and all that he has done. 
So if I could encourage you to practice one thing about following Jesus for the long haul this week, I would first and most encourage you to practice what it means to rest in Christ, being more God conscious. And that might be as simple as when you sit down, imagine being seated next to God and the peace and the rest that that brings and the change in your perspective and just the physically what that feels like, connected to it in a spiritual way. Practice being more aware of what God might be doing in your kids or in your, at your work, being just a little bit more aware of what he is and, and, and developing that. But to help with that, I also um, have um, a page outline of two prayers that have been very helpful for other people of trying to connect with God and grow in the rest. It's called the breath prayer and the prayer of exam. And so you can pick that up on the, on the way out if you'd like. So, gosh, well, let's just pray and, um, and thank God. God, I just thank you so much that you desire a deeper relationship with us. I thank you that it is not impersonal. Lord, I thank you that you desire for us to experience more closeness and confidence and joy in you. I thank you, God, that there is no place that we can go that you have not been and that you don't have prepared some kind of goodness for us. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us um, to, to rest and trust in you more. I declare your goodness, your hope, your security to be upon each person here as we choose to follow you every day. And in the precious name of Jesus Christ, who we love and serve and adore. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.